morning, everybody. In case we've not met, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to show you a picture of uh, my kids when they were little. Aren't they ridiculously beautiful? My wife creates great little babies. I may have had something to do with it. I share this with you just to set the stage for the story I want to begin with here. When my kids were little, I took them to the park. And as we were walking up to the park, we heard this loud sound. And we looked around and we didn't know what that was. And we proceeded to the park. And as the kids began to play on the playground, a little boy came up to me. And I began to put two and two together and thought, I think this child may have just been abused just moments ago. And he came up to me like he wanted to pick a fight. I mean, the kid was five. I thought I could take him. <laughs> but he came up angry and he threatened me. And so I leaned down and I got close to him and I said, you know, in, in my family, we don't, we don't threaten one another. We don't hit one another. We love each other. So I turned to continue playing with my kids and the little boy came over and he put his hand in mine and he said, would you go down the slide with me? I want you to think for a moment about your friends and I want you to think about how many people living in a fallen world where tragedy happens and where abuse happens and where God seems distant at times, how many people are like that little boy needing to find God, needing to put their hand and their lives into the hand of the eternal Father that loves them. Today I want to talk about the goodness of God. I want to talk about the goodness of God, but I also want to talk about the wildness of God. And we've got to understand both. If we're to live our lives following Jesus with our hand in the hand of the Father, we've got to understand both the goodness and the wildness, the wildness of God. I want to pray for you guys. God, we confess how quickly we lose our way, how quickly our hearts turn to not trust you. It seems like we're inclined to that. And you have been so good. You are so good. Everything you do is good. You are excellent, most excellent. And yet, we're like that little kid. Would you use today, would you use this message, would you use me to shape and to mold our hearts, to repair our hearts, to mend us, to invite us, to live our lives a certain way, to live our lives with our hands in your hand? We want you to be you. <laughs> we just want to be us with you, and we need your help with that today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Six things I know about the goodness of God. The first is that everything God made was good. Everything God made was good. Whether we're talking about porpoises or puppy dogs or human beings, this world, this universe is a manifestation of God's greatness, his glory, his creativity. Genesis 131. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. 
I know this too. God is good to everyone. Do you know that? Does your soul know that? That God is good to everyone, not just Christians. God is good to everyone. That goodness may look different, but God is good to everyone. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all he has made. He has compassion. We see the heart of God. It is a heart of compassion toward every human being. I know this too, that all that God is and all that God does is good. It may be painful, it may be confusing, but it is always good, all that God does and all that God is. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, you're good. And what you do is good. Teach me. Teach me your decrees. You know, in the first church I got involved with as a young Christian, they, what the musicians would do is they would take the words of scriptures and they would make them a song. And uh, they were terrible. They were terrible. So one of them was uh, out of Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he will teach sinners in the way. So I'm listening to this. And I have this song stuck in my head, and I know the scripture because of that. But the truth behind it is amazing. God is good in that he invites sinners, people like us, to actually learn about him and know him. And when you begin to see how God is good, when you, his goodness begins to soak into your soul, the normal response is to cry out, teach me, teach me, God, show me. I also know this, that all things that are good are from God. All things that are good are from God. James puts it this way. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is the same as the day goes on. He is the same today as he was yesterday. In other words, God's goodness to you is today in this moment just as good as when he died for you on the cross. I know this as well. Goodness can come from all circumstances. Do you know that at a soul level? Do you know that God does not ordain evil, but God moves into evil? He moves redemptively. Everyone here, some of us have been through evil. Some of us have not yet. But when evil comes, when the dark day comes, when life is confusing, God is moving redemptively into that place. Romans 8.28 we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. But the most important thing, the most important thing that I have learned about God's goodness, the ultimate expression of God's goodness is our salvation. For God to take people who offend him and to own them and say, you're now mine, I adopt you, I love you, I delight in you, I want to walk with you, I want to give you everything that I have. Salvation is the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And the story, the story that illustrates our salvation is the Exodus story. Now, I know we went through a series called Our Exodus months ago. But I need to give us a refresher course as we remember this story. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt to Pharaoh. 
and their lives were hard and they were oppressed and their baby boys were thrown into the Nile River. And God heard and saw and cared. And he sent to deliver Moses. And then the 10 plagues happened. Remember this if you have ever seen the movie. The 10 plagues are not like random events. It's directed against the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So it's not random. It's not like there's this box of plagues up in heaven. Locusts, that's a good one. Boils, that's a good one. Frogs, who got into my plague box? Come on, who put frogs in the heavenly plague box? That's not what happened. It was all designed to deconstruct the worldview of the, Egypt, of the Egyptians, that they would see that, that what they had trusted in did not work. So God rescued his people, and they walk out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and this is where we pick up our story. So I want you to turn with me to Exodus 14. And I'm going to read this kind of quickly, because I have a lot to say here today. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahareth, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, let me just tell you what God is leading his people into is a trap. God is leading his people. Once he has saved them, he is leading them right into an impossible situation with the Red Sea behind them and with Pharaoh's army coming at them. This is important for you to understand this attribute of God. He led them into an impossible situation intentionally. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land in the wilderness to shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt had told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them. And he took 600 chosen chariots, because there's chariots and then there's chosen chariots. You know those trucks that have those spikes on their wheels? That's what these chariots were probably like. And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Bear with me. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. They feared greatly. It makes perfect sense, right? Pharaoh's army is coming. They're trapped by the Red Sea. It makes perfect sense for them to fear greatly. Except God had already gone through 10 rounds against the gods of Egypt. Every Israelite, every Hebrew, every person in this story has already seen God do amazing things. What they should have said in their hearts toward the Egyptians that were coming after them is like, what, you want more? They should have had a godly swagger, a God is with me. I don't need to fear, but they didn't have that. And I lost my place. And the, thank you. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, check this out. 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, it not, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. We don't want to be saved. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than, the, than to die in the wilderness. They had experienced the goodness of God, but now they're experiencing the wildness of God. The God that wants their hearts. The God that will place them in impossible situations to reveal himself to them. Do you, do you see how small the God is in their minds? It's sad. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And this is the part I love. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? So Moses is praying, right? Moses sees this impossible situation and he cries out to God. And God says back to him, why are you praying? Why are you talking to me? Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. There is no forward, right? You all see this in your mind? There is no forward. There is a Red Sea. They are trapped. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Then tell the people of Israel to go through the sea on dry ground. I love this because God treats the people that he's saved as if he expects them to treat him as if he's God. When we encounter the hardships of life, and I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know your story. I don't know what difficulties you face. But I look at this, and I hear God saying to me, why are you crying? Stand up, lead, move into the impossible situation because I'm good and I'm wild and I'm in your story. I'm in your story. I'm working in your life. That impossible situation where you think it tells you I'm not here, that's not true. That hardship that you're going through that tells you that I'm not good, not true. I'm in your story. I'm here. I'm leading. But I'm wild. Everyone catch what I'm sharing. The next scene is eerie. Carrie especially will love this because it is about worship. What happens is God, Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, and then he takes his staff, and he puts it back in the direction of the Red Sea, and the waters cover all of the Egyptians, and the text says that the Israelites saw the dead bodies of the Egyptians on the seashore. It's eerie. But it's also, remember, an image of salvation, that when we've come to know Jesus, our old life, our lusts, our addictions, our problems... We're new. That old life is gone. God doesn't want us looking back. And here's how I imagine this. The Israelites, looking at the dead bodies, begin to realize that God has fought for them, that they are saved, that they have been set free. So I imagine a few people under their breath saying, Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. And then person after person begins to drop to their knees as they realize, God has, God has saved me. I'm, I'm, I'm free. And then some people begin to lift their hands to the sky. And then Miriam, Moses' sister, grabs her tambourine. And you know what Moses does? Moses takes his pen and he begins to write a song. Now, you probably didn't know that. This is the very first song in Exodus chapter 15, the very first song written for community worship, and Moses is the dude that wrote it. And you know what's interesting? In Revelation, when it describes all believers from all nations standing before God, realizing in fullness our rescue, do you know what song they sing? It's not Amazing Grace. It's the song of Moses. And you know what's cool about the song of Moses? I've heard a lot of worship songs, and I love a lot of worship songs. A lot of worship songs about God's grace and God's loving kindness and how good God is, and those are beautiful. The song of Moses climaxes in saying, the Lord is a man of war. He's fire and smoke. He's serious about our rescue. And here's what I want you to hear. As you listen to this talk, I just want you to realize that your salvation is about you. God put on human skin and came after you. You know that reference in the song earlier that he leaves the 99? I want us all to understand that. This is an image of a Middle Eastern shepherd that has a flock of 100 sheep, and he leaves 99 of them to go after the one that is lost. This is an image of God. I don't know where you're at, if you come back to the flock or not, but every single person in that room, either now or at some point in your life, you were that one. You were that one. And he left us and came for you. So I want you to hear this, that your salvation is about you. God came for you, but it's not all about you. It's about you. It's not all about you. That's what is so crazy about this story and about God's wildness is God saves us, but he saves us for a purpose. He saves us for us, for our love, for our enjoyment, but also to use us to reach the rest of this world. Does that make sense to you? And if you catch that, if you realize that it's about you, but not all about you, now we can begin to understand the wildness of God. Now we can begin to understand why he pursues us why he takes things out of our lives because he wants our heart because he wants us to shine. This story shows us that God is wild. He's unpredictable. He's untamed. If I can use this word, he's dangerous. He's a dangerous God. I love what Walter Brueggemann said. We live our lives before the wild, dangerous, unfettered, and free character of the living God, who wants our hearts. When we begin to see this, the rest of the scripture makes sense. I don't know how Christians can be normal. I hope you hear this in the sense in which I mean it. I don't understand how Christians can live normal lives because every story in this book is about God's wild, passionate pursuit of people to make them dangerous. You have the Abraham story. God tells Abraham, I'm going to save the world through your descendant, which is the Messiah, but first your people are going to be in slavery for 430 years. And Abraham had to be, just say in his heart, it's like, really? That's your plan? That's the goodness of God? That's crazy. 
or Joseph. Joseph is hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, carried away to Egypt. He becomes a slave. Potiphar's wife lies about him because he will not lie with her. And he's thrown into jail, and there he's forgotten in jail. And Joseph had to be thinking in his heart, really, is this the goodness of God? Actually, we know what Joseph was thinking in his heart. Because the scripture tells us, Psalm 105, verse 19. Until what God had said came to pass, his, the word of the Lord tested him. It wrestled with him. God's word of goodness and sovereignty and wisdom wrestled with Joseph while he was in the prison, and he trusted it. So here's what I want you to hear about this, is life will shoot arrows at you. You will go through experiences that are hard, and those experiences will make you question. I love the way John Eldridge puts this. This is the message of the arrows. God is not the one shooting the arrows. Life is. And the message of the arrows is, is God really here? I want to read you just a small quote from Eldridge. Uh, this is called The Sacred Romance, written years ago. The terror we enter and the seeming lack of rescue from it leave us with a deeply imprinted question about God that we hide in our heart, sometimes not allowing the light of day to touch it for years, even deep into our spiritual journey. We cover the question with rationalizations that let God off the hook and allow us to still believe, but our beliefs rest on foundations that move and quake under us. The question lodged deep in our heart, hidden from our conscious mind, do you care for me, God? And the answer is yes, but God's goodness meets his wildness, which leads to things that are difficult and intended to free our heart, not for us to question God. We have a dog named Baloo. I've shown you this lovely image. And our dog, Blue, eats thorns. These are the thorns from the Bougainvillea tree where I like to pray. And these thorns fall on the ground, and Blue, our dog, eats the thorns. And I was praying there a few weeks ago, and one of these became lodged in my foot. So the day that we had the church party at my house, Haywood was in the bathroom with me with a scalpel and a needle trying to get the thorn lodged in my foot out. And I appreciate it, my friend. But he was unable to do it. And I wonder how many of us are like that, that you have a thorn a lie, a suspicion about God lodged in your heart that you limp through life because that thorn has not yet been extricated. And God, in his wisdom, has given us not just his word and not just his spirit, but his people. And my experience, the thorns, the questions that we have lodged in our heart are removed in community. And we hope you find our community safe that you could be healed and the love of God could empower you. 
course, the greatest example of wildness. The ultimate expression of the wildness of God is what? Salvation, yes. More precisely, it is a person. I'll give you that clue, and we are in a church. Jesus. What is God doing in human skin? And really, it's only when we begin to look at Jesus and we see how out of the box he is. Why is he talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when that went against the culture of the Jews? Why is it that he took out a whip when he went into the temple and drove the religious hypocrites out? Because Jesus is dangerous. And if I could put it this way, when a church embraces the goodness and the wildness of God, the dangerous God that gave us a dangerous book creates a dangerous people. Are you following me? Like, not in that we want to harm people, in that our love is dangerous. Our pursuit is dangerous. Look what Perry Noble said. Here's the dangerous thing about Jesus. He's not after your behavior. He's after your heart. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is going to relentlessly and passionately pursue your heart. Even when your behavior tricks everybody else, it just doesn't trick Jesus. He's coming after the heart. Mark Batterson put it this way. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness isn't holding down the fort. It's storming the gates of hell with the light and the love of Jesus Christ. In my own life, before salvation, I didn't have a box. God was an idea, concept. He wasn't real to me. But when someone communicated the good news of Jesus, I knew God. It's like I had God in a box. I could carry God with me wherever I went. But God was in a box. And as I began to pour through the scriptures and see God as he's revealed in his word, my box got bigger. But God was still in a box. And it's only when I've gone through difficulty, when I've gone through hard times, when the message of the arrows has been confronted by the message of the scripture about the goodness and wildness of God, that I've thrown my box away. I want to read you a uh, section of scripture here in Ephesians um, you know, Scripture doesn't make me cry very often, and it's because I'm so familiar with it, and I'm very familiar with this verse, and it brought me to tears this last week as God shed new light into my heart. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So picture the people of Israel having no possible way of escaping their bondage. And God moves into that story, and he says, I'm going to do something ridiculous and off the hook and out of the box for you. I'm going to take a bunch of slaves, and I'm going to so fill them with the good, my goodness that they walk through life, 
as worshipers that the whole world can see them. It's all an act of God's grace. Verse 9, not as a result of works that no one would boast. God doesn't ever intend for any Christian to be able to boast, to think that I have done this. Because when God begins to write his story into your heart, what is impressed upon you is that this is not me, this is you. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Some of us have thought about this verse before when it says that we're his workmanship. It's we're his masterpiece. It's like there's this painting and there's a painter in front of the painting and he's got his little specks of paint, his little blobs of paint. Are those called anything? We're going with blobs of paint. And as we look at the canvas, the initial marks of the painter are unimpressive. We cannot tell where this is going. We cannot tell what this image is meant to be. But as you sit there long enough, you begin to realize this painter really knows what he's doing. And you look at what is appearing on the canvas, and it is this masterpiece. And that masterpiece is you. That's what this is saying. That God is painting a picture in your life. But here's what struck me this past week. I realized that God in his sovereignty had plans for me that were very different than the plans I had for myself. And without going into a lot of detail, I had plans for how many churches I was going to plant and what God was going to go do through me. And God said, no, I'm going to take you on a detour and you must surrender your life to me. And I remember there being a night when I walked out under the stars and thought about this and I just lifted up my hands and I said, I surrender. I don't know what you're going to do with me, but I surrender my life to the wildness of God. And what brought me to tears this last week is, well, I'm a poet. And I don't say that boastfully. I probably will never share one of my poems with you on. apologize right now for that. My poems, though, are very private, uh, powerful images. Every word in the poems that I've been led to write are an expression of my soul. And I realize the word workmanship, if I'm pronouncing this right is the word poema, which is where we get the word poem from. And it's as if God is saying, I'm writing a poem from your life, and it's different than what you plan for yourself because I'm God and you're you, and you must let me be God. I am good, but I am wild, but what I am writing and what I am painting is beautiful if you will just live and surrender to me. Many of us have uh, benefited from the writing of C.S. Lewis and um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe tells a story of these four children that go through a wardrobe and they end up in a new land, Narnia. And Narnia, though owned by Aslan, the king, Narnia is fallen, 
and the white witch has covered Narnia with snow. And there's a promise given that Aslan will return and set everything right. But the children must learn how to live in a fallen world, in a winter-covered Narnia, where goodness doesn't always happen. Lucy asks, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know that he is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replies, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake about it. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. And I want you to see the response of Mr. Beaver. Safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I want to close with two images here. I want to go back to the image of the father with the kid in the park. This is the image that I began this talk with, but our image is really different. The image is meant to express the eternal father. And I just want to ask you, what is the slide in your life? God is saying... I want to take you down the slide. What is that slide? Is it salvation? Is it just bowing your knee to King Jesus? Is it looking at some hardship in your life, some circumstance, and saying, okay, I'm going to go down the slide with God. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know where the slide leads. But I will get in his lap, and I will trust him as I go down that slide. Or is it taking some risk, some challenge that you've never moved into before? Is it taking some risk because you trust that he is with you? The second image is the cross of Christ. And in the cross, we learn more about God and his nature and his wisdom and his love and his kindness and his grace and his pursuit and his wildness than any word can convey. God's passionate, jealous, intense, out-of-the-box, dangerous, oh-so-good, but dangerous love pursues us, invites us, woos us, and changes us. Can you stand as we move into worship? Father God, we want to just pause before the cross. We want to imagine with our minds the lonely figure there. The blood dripping from his forehead, his wrists, his feet. 
his anguish, his excruciating pain, and his great determination that I will not stop until I can say it is finished. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for being so out of the box. I thank you for crushing my life plans and calling me to good works that you've designed. And today as a church, we bow our knee and we bow our hearts in front of something beautiful, in front of something dangerous, but in front of something very, very, very good. We worship you in the great name of Jesus. Amen.